The book of Acts is about the gospel. In Acts chapter 1, verse, uh, was it 8? Jesus said, hey, I want you to go and wait in Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you, right? And then what are you going to do? You're going to be my witnesses? Where are you going to be my witnesses? Jerusalem, right? Then Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. God starts with where we are. We're witnessed there, and he works our way out. It's pretty neat. Chapter 10 is about eight years after Jesus' resurrection. So we've got some time. Some things have happened here. The gospel's mainly gone to people who are of Jewish origin. They're Hellenists, probably. They have a Greek background, but they are Jews. We have some exceptions with going to the Ethiopian eunuch there down in chapter, uh, was it eight with Philip, right? But mostly, as they're reaching out to Samaria, as they're reaching out to these other areas, it's mostly Jewish people. And as you open up Romans, this is the Gospels, first preached to the Jews, and then it goes to the Gentiles. That's God's order of things. And so we're going to see God transition here from the ministry solely to the people of Israel, which began with Jesus. Jesus started ministering to his people, whom he has called the chosen people, who are separated from the Gentiles, the non-Jews. They were raised up as a people. We saw the story. That's what Genesis was about. Anybody? Genesis? Remember Genesis? You saw a, a, a person, Adam, become a lot of people, and then obviously it shaped into a nation that you come back down to the person of Jesus Christ through the nation of Israel. So they were separated from everybody else. They weren't allowed to intermarry all these other, other, other races and cultures and all this stuff. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, and I know it's not culturally acceptable today, but God was preparing the Messiah to come through that lineage. And now Jesus was here. He died on the cross. The Messiah has been born. He's dead. He's raised again. And that wall of separation is gone. But you still have years and years and years and years and years of Judaism. And these guys are raised in the law. And Jesus is now going to wake their, open up their minds and their hearts that who, with how you've grown up, how you were raised, how all these types of things are now going to shift. Because I no longer want you to be focused on, you know, your people who you just want to talk to, but my heart beats for the world. My heart has always beat for the world. We see that in Abraham. What was his promise to Abraham? That you will be a blessing to the world. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. That was God's plan from the beginning. And might you say that was God's plan with Adam? Be fruitful, multiply, go all over the world. The gospel's always been there. And so we see that Peter has gone out from Jerusalem. He's cruising down to Samaria with Philip, and then a lot of other things are happening. And then he hears of believers on the coast, and so he decides he wants to take a coastal trip goes and hangs out with the believers in Lydda, right? And what happens? As he went, he ran into a guy who was paralyzed. He ministers to him there at the end of chapter 9, and he says, get up. Jesus heals you. So he got up, and he did it just the way Jesus did. And we talked about that, that as we go around, we share the gospel. We don't need to try to reinvent the wheel. We just do what Jesus did. He is our model. He is our strength. He is our power. He is everything. And so we see the same thing. Uh, he cruises on a little bit further and runs into a lady named Dorcas, right? 
What happened? She died. She was a disciple, goes in the room, kicks everybody out, raises her from the dead, just the way Jesus did, just the way he was trained, just the way he was taught. And so it says at the end of chapter 9, it says that Peter was staying with a guy named Simon the Tanner. In verse 43, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. It's significant that he's staying in Joppa. What happened in Joppa 800 years earlier? Anybody remember? Come on now. You all know this. Bible trivia, Sunday morning, anybody. What happened in Joppa? Someone didn't want to get on a boat or got on a boat, was running away from God. Jonah. Who, who was Jonah called to minister to? Nineveh. Who were the Ninevites? Were they Jews? So why did Jonah throw a fit? What did he say? I'm not going to talk to those people because I know you're good and you're going to save them. That's how much I hate them. This is God's prophet who he's working through, by the way. So I think God can work through us. Anyone? <laughs> okay, cool. So they hated the Gentiles so much. There was just a hatred, a discord. There was a prayer that the rabbis used to say, God, thank you so much that I'm not you know, a, a dog. I wasn't born a dog, a Gentile, or a, or a woman. That's how crazy these people were, right? But they were seriously just, these are obviously the rabbis that taught this stuff. But that's not who we find Jesus to be, do we? That's not the heart of God. He came to break down all that. He said there isn't, what, Jew or Gentile or Greek or man or woman or bondman or Scythian or whatever you want to... There aren't all these separation of groups and ethnicities and all these types of things. We are one in Christ. One in Christ. The world preaches something else. God loves flavor, don't get me wrong. He loves color. He loves background. I'm sure he loves food. Jesus ate all the time. Every time you see him in the Gospels, he's eating something or making food for people, miraculously. He's catering five for 5,000. I know. <laughs> exactly. Fish and chips, right? And so it says, Peter's up here by the coast, and it says in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was known as the Italian Regiment, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Caesarea is an interesting city. It's on the city. It's on the coast right there. And there's a, it was built by Herod the Great in around eight, somewhere 25 to 13 B.C., and it was an amazing place. It was dedicated to Caesar. It's just a total Roman capital right in the middle of, of you know, Palestine, Israel, that whole, that whole era. In that whole area. And it was really a central hub for Romans. It's, it's funny how archaeology has brought so much light on the truth of Scripture. There was a debate, you know, about Pontius Pilate or, and so many characters in the Bible about whether they're real or not. How many of you say, oh, that's all. Someone made it and they twisted it. Those aren't real people. They're all made up and all that stuff. And so 1961, they're excavating the theater there in Caesarea, uh, which has an amazing aqueduct system and just just great Roman architecture. It's a fascinating place there, right on the sea. And as they're digging, they come up to this big stone. And it says, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. 
oh, well, I guess she is real. You know, I and mean, it's just funny how all these things, archaeology keeps on proving that the Bible is true. And archaeologists keep going to the Bible actually to find out where, where they find stuff. And it's amazing. Not so like with the Book of Mormon and these places that create real true stories, I mean, real stories about America and how two tribes of, of Jews came over and fought each other. And the one that won is the Indians who are here. And there's all this geography to talk about that's not true. And so one of the things about the Bible is you can verify the truth of it even by the very ground that they dig in out there. That these things truly happened. There were witnesses. There was archaeology going on, obviously, that we can verify. There's extra biblical people talking about it. You know, three of the historians of the time quoted, uh, it was Philo and Tacticus and Josephus. They, they talked about Pontius Pilate in their writing, and still the people said, no, he's not a real person. Just not wanting to believe that it's true, and yet we see that it is. And so the Bible is verified by outside sources. You have archaeology, you have historians, you have biblical accounts, church history, and all these types of things. And yet, it is the most scrutinized book in the Bible. And there are things in here that will actually blow you away as you get into the details about how, like the last 12 verses of Mark. You know, how could the, you know, the NIV omits them or talks about all this stuff, but I can't even get into it right now about how many... Uh, groups of multiples of sevens, the words, the letters, all these types of things. It's incalculable. I I can't even get into it right now. I'll talk to you about it later if you want to go down that rabbit trail. But the Bible's true. And so he talks about it. Caesarea. Gosh, we're not even out of verse 1 yet. There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. Now, a centurion is a person who who was in the Roman army, and he was in charge of 100, 100 troops. And he had to be brave, but he couldn't just go off crazy into battle. He wasn't a person to go seeking out it. But if a battle came to him, he would stand until he died. That's the kind of character, the kind of person that we see centurions are being. Did you know that there were seven centurions mentioned in the New Testament? And all of them are pretty much in, in, a, in a positive light. Remember the, uh, the one at the, the thief on the, well, actually, when you're at the cross, the guy who was standing there when, after he got run through by the soldier, and the way he died, the centurion looked up and said, surely this is the Son of God. Remember the other story when Jesus was going through Israel, and the centurion sent a servant to Jesus and said, I, I have someone who's sick. And Jesus said, well, do you want me to come to, to their house? And he says, no, the centurion says that he understands authority. He says, I tell men to go, and they go, and I tell men to come, and they come. I understand authority, so if you just say it, I know that they'll be healed. And Jesus just was blown away at this centurion, this Roman officer who was occupying their territory, all that stuff, the political stuff. He goes, in all of Israel, I've never seen a faith. I haven't seen faith like this guy, a Gentile. So these these are these guys are are even though they're we're warriors and things are going on and there's political stuff. There's, there's some amazing things that the Lord has talked to them, uh, has, has revealed about them. But this guy, Cornelius, he's a centurion, what was known as the Italian Regiment. And he and all of his family, now it starts talking about his character, were devout and God-fearing. Devout and God-fearing. Again, going extra biblical, there's a guy named Josephus I told you about. He's a historian. He talks a little bit about 
this group of people called the God-fearers. So this might actually be a technical term. We don't know. But the God-fearers were people who were Gentiles that were very favorable towards Judaism. They followed almost all the things except for they fell short on circumcision, uh, circumcision and, and they did not probably uh, participate on Sabbath, you know, uh, because they couldn't go into the, into the cultures, into the buildings and all that stuff because they were unclean. Uh, to the Jews, but they followed all these types of things. And so it might have been that they were God-fearers, one of these groups, but also just could mean they feared God. But there was a technical term of the time to identify certain people. And so uh, I think Pontius Pilate's wife was recorded in history as being one of those God-fearers. And so uh, his family was devout, his whole family, and they feared God. This guy's life was translated into the life of his family. Did you know, can you see that? It said that his whole family was devout. And we've had such a breakdown in our society of, of, of family that, that men no longer really lead their families, or it's very difficult to in this culture, lead their families into fearing the Lord, into, into encouraging them in the things of God. You know, what you are like as a, a father, as a man, is very much how your children will turn out be influenced. If your life is all around sports, your kids will be involved in sports. And I'm not saying there's bad things, but if that's what you're about, your kids are going to grow up about sports. If you are all about money, your kids are going to be on money. If you're about success, you're about success. Not that all these things are bad, but if you're about the Lord, your kids are going to be influenced. Your family is going to be influenced about the Lord. And you can let all these other things be in your life. I, I told you in San Diego, I love to surf. I played softball. You know, a lot of fun stuff. But solely, if people look at your life, are you identified like this? Here's a centurion who loved to play softball and bowl on Friday nights. You know, I mean, it's okay. But I mean, <laughs> he was identified by his love and fear for God. And how we need that in our culture, how we need that in our families. Men who say, you know what? I follow Jesus Christ. Boom. And it's not only in words, but it's how I live out every day. And it affects my family. And how many of you guys struggle with that? Totally. Absolutely. Me too. But this is beautiful. And And this guy's a Gentile, right? And it's in this, so his family was influenced, he was devout, and he was God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed regularly. His faith actually, it had, had meaning. It, 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 it impacted people around him. It, it touched his fellow man. When they saw people who were hurting, they, he, he, he acted upon what he believed. Does that make sense? How's that going for us? And he prayed regularly, as we will see. The Jews prayed regularly. They had prayers every part, every part of the day, and he, he followed that. He was a man of prayer. Remember Daniel? He prayed the three times a day, got in trouble for it, got thrown in the lion's den, but he would not stop. He prayed three times a day. This is the kind of man this guy is. And it says in verse 3, one day about... Three in the afternoon. Some of yours might say whatever hour as they talk about the Jews, but it's three in the afternoon. Circle the number three in your Bible. Very important. He had a vision. 
he distinctly saw an angel of God who came and said, Cornelius, he called him by name. And Cornelius uh, stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. Lord, uh, a word for reverence, master, authority, submitted to this person. What is it? Notice the centurion has fear. Pretty cool. Reverence towards God. He runs into one of God's angels, and he's like, ah, I'm undone. And he recalls him as a shiny one, a fiery one later, when he's recalling the story to Peter. And the angel answered, hey, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Leviticus 2, there was a, there's offerings that the Jews were to give before God. One was the grain offering, and they call it, it comes as a memorial, a remembrance. Uh, a representative offering is kind of more, more accurate. It represents, and so this might have been alluding to, hey, you are interceding on behalf of the Gentiles. Some people think that. I don't know. It kind of eludes me, so I'll just move on. Let's kind of <laughs> chew that over. Now send men to Joppa, right? To bring back a man named Simon, who was called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now, here's this Gentile guy who fears God. And yet, God appears to him through an angel and says, you need to go get Peter to come talk to you. My question is, look at this guy's life. Look how he acts. Look what he's doing. Is this guy saved? He's a God-fearer. He prays regularly. He gives to the poor. He's feared, but he's, he's respected by all the Jews. And yet, what's going on? He's lost. He's lost. But God sees this guy. And he sees his heart, and that's not why he's accepted. It'll talk about accepted, but it it gets God's attention. And he says, and he sends an angel to him and says, Hey, you need to do A, B, and C. Go get Peter, and he's going to come. He's going to come talk to you. Send some guys. Go get Peter. He's staying in Joppa, and, he, and he's going to come. He's going to come give you the gospel. That gives me such hope that God, you know, basically what you have. I think John Corson he said, you have a, a sinful seeker, and Jesus is seeking out sinful seekers. Jesus seeks out people who are seeking him. Did you know that? And Jesus seeks out people who don't seek him, which is really cool because we're all like sheep that have gone astray, correct? There are people all over the world in various cultures and various backgrounds and various who are very devout people who give to the poor and who do all these things. But if you take away anything from this guy, as we will see, is that those things do not save a man. They do not save a woman. They do not make us right with God. But God, seeing this guy, his heart is breaking for him, sends the message, the truth, the gospel to him. Now my question is, why didn't the angel just tell him the gospel? He could have done it so much better than anyone else, don't you think? It has greater perspective 
probably a better vocabulary, didn't stumble over himself, you know, didn't get things wrong. He probably could have just said it the way it was supposed to be. Why did, didn't the angel just quickly get it done? Stephen. You wanted Cornelius to step out, you bet, but he's talking to an angel too, right? He's working on Peter. He's working on Peter, isn't he? Peter's what? What's his background? He's a Jew. Cornelius is what? Who's the gospel for? There's a gap. God is bringing Peter along and he's conforming him to the heart of Christ. Now, Peter's got the Holy Spirit. He's born again. He's saved. But does he have some growing to do? Does he have some changing the way that he views the world? Did God do that on day one when he was saved and born again? No, here we are. How many years into his walk with the Lord? 15 years? 13 years? And he has something new to learn, something to change, something to grow in, a new way to see the Lord, a new way to step out in faith. The gospel is not meant for angels to preach except for one in, the Revelation, in Revelation that will proclaim the everlasting gospel. It's for us. It's for us. They're messengers from God. We are messengers of the gospel. Angels have not been saved by Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. That privilege alone is ours. It is yours. It's an honor. And so the angel doesn't proclaim it. He gets Peter to do it. It says, when the angel spoke to him and had gone, Cornelius sent how many? Two of his servants and what? A devout soldier. How many is that? Hmm. Who's he going to go talk to? Peter? Okay, we'll talk about that later. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea, right? Anyways, verse 8, he told them everything that had happened, these, these servants, and sent them to Joppa. Verse 9, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. So he's praying regularly. This is Peter's life. Verse 10, and he became hungry. Peter likes to eat too. And he's staying at a tanner's house. A tanner is a person who takes animal hides and makes them into... Uh, usable leather. And so that's kind of, he's staying at that person's house. I guess under the Mishnah, uh, uh, you could divorce a tanner because it was just smelled really bad. I don't know. There were certain, it was just a bad situation. He's, that was lawful to them. Anyways, he's dealing with dead animals all the time. What happens in Jewish law if you're dealing with things that are dead? You're unclean. Who's Peter staying with? A Jew that's kind of, God's working through circumstances. What's happening? He's working around animals and all this stuff, and what is God going to do? He's going to speak to him in the circumstances he's in. He's going to use the people. He's going to use the circumstances around him to speak something true that's happening in his life. And he's on his roo- the roof. He's going to pray, and he became hungry. He wanted something to eat. He's even using his own desires where he's hungry. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven open up in something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. My guess is it was a screen like this. It just went like that. And the Lord started a PowerPoint presentation. 
Peter's like, something like a sheet with four corners. That's it right there. I can tell you with authority. No, don't hold it. Yeah. And he saw that uh, it, it, it contained, verse 11, all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as creepy, the crawly things, reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And then a voice said to him, told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And I love Peter's re- response. Surely not, Lord. You're wrong. That ain't going to happen. In case you didn't know, Lord, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. You see, I'm a Jew. Peter has this great ability to tell God no. And to remember, uh, who do you say that I am? Jesus, this amazing moment, who do you say that I am? And what happens? You are the Messiah. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but your Father in heaven has given you. That is divine wisdom. A couple sentences later, okay, now Jesus is saying, now Peter, I'm going to go and, the, and I'm going to suffer things at the hands of the elders, the Sanhedrin. They're going to do horrible things to me. I'm going to die, but I'll be rose again on the third day. And Peter's reply is, no way, Lord. No, that is not in the chips. We're not doing that. And Peter, and then Jesus turns around and says, get thee behind me, Satan. So one second, Peter's getting discernment from the Father. The second, like, couple verses later, same, same conversation, he's being influenced by the enemy. Peter has an, a, a lot of growing to do. Anybody have a lot of growing to do? Lord says, I want you to walk across the street and share my gospel with them. Not so, Lord. Not so. Don't you know I've never done that before? I'm going to change some things up in your life. And, and God has to talk to Peter, and he's working on him. Don't you love he just doesn't zap him, he works on him? And he communicates in a way that Peter understands. And this is very important. God will communicate to you in a way that you will understand. You'll get it. It takes a little training. Peter had to be trained in this, but there's, a, there's something that the Holy Spirit is weaving through the text, and he's also nailing Peter with it. And so what happens there, and it says, uh, he said, Surely not, Lord. Peter replied, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Verse 15, and then a voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. In verse 16, this happened how many times? Three times. And immediately, the sheet was taken back to heaven. Three is a very, very significant number with Peter. Remember in the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus brings him up there before his death, right? They're sitting there, and all of a sudden, Jesus is talking with Elijah and Moses. And so Peter decides to go, hey, let's build three tabernacles, one for each of these guys. Isn't that great, Jesus? It's going to be awesome. And what happens? Father from heaven says, no, listen to my son. And then it's all silent. All only they saw was Jesus shining in his radiant glory. Okay, lesson, Jesus, not the other three. Peter's got a great heart for God. He wants to do big things. He wants to go and do these things. He's just not there yet. He's about to, Jesus is about to be crucified. 
there in the garden. Will you come and pray with me for an hour? Will you come and pray with me for an hour, Peter? Watch and pray, you know? Jesus goes off a little further, prays, comes back. What's Peter doing? Sleeping. Sleeping. He's letting the sorrow of what is going to happen overtake him. He's sleeping. He's so, they're, they're sad. He's letting his emotions get the best of him. And so he's sleeping. Jesus goes back again, comes back, and what are they doing? Sleeping again. What happens the third time? Same thing. Three naps. Three naps on that night. Jesus told him, what did he say to him? Hey, I'll follow you to the end of the the earth, Peter said. And what did Jesus say? You're going to deny me how many times? Three times before the night's out. Peter denied him three times, went away, wept bitterly, went back to fishing. Jesus, risen, he's standing on the shore, Peter's fishing, looks at him, calls him out and says, hey, you know, have you caught anything? No, cast your nets on the other side. And they had so much fish they couldn't believe it. And what happens? Peter jumps off the boat, recognizes Jesus, comes in, and Jesus has a talk with him. What does he say? Ask him three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You said you loved me. Remember you die? But you deny me three times. Jesus repeats it three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Take care of my sheep. This is God speaking to Peter. Peter knows the number three. Every time he sees the number three, now he's like, what's going on, Lord? (laughs) He's trained. That wound is a way that the Lord speaks deep into his heart. He can't bear to have that break anymore. And so God is fashioning the story. He's fashioning the people, the circumstances, so he will know this is me. Cornelius is praying at what time? Three o'clock. How many people is he sending over? Three Gentiles. How many times did the sheet come up and down? We've got three incidents there. Three times each. God's talking. Peter's trying to discern what's going on. Lord knows how to speak to us. And what he's saying when this sheet came down and he saw all these animals, that, all these unclean animals that previously they were not allowed to eat. Two things are going on here. One is saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. It's because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has, made, has, has done away with all those dietary laws. They're, they're done. They're gone. You're free to eat a ham sandwich. You're free to eat a ham sandwich. You are. You can have ham. There is no clean and unclean. God has made it clean. You can go eat bugs. You can eat a snake. You can eat all these weird things. Now, do I recommend any of this? You eat all ham sandwiches your whole life, there's going to be consequences, right? But he's saying you're free. Now, he's saying I've cleansed that, but what's the deeper meaning to this? Why would God give the green light for ham sandwiches? The title of my message is Ham Sandwich. Why? Who eats ham sandwiches? Gentiles. What is a major block between the the obstacle for the gospel going forward? Clean and unclean, culture. 
We've seen obstacles so far of sin in the church, outside the church, oppression from the outside, and all this stuff. And now Jesus is coming to cultural ministry. I died to make it to where you can go to talk to anyone, anywhere, anytime. And there are no excuses in the body of Christ for ministering cross-culturally. Any racist stuff we've had in our backgrounds and all that stuff, it's gone. Jesus wiped it away. He loves everybody. He died for all of them. For you crazy Gentiles too, by the way. Like me. He loves people. He loves people with fierceness. You know, I was raised in San Marcos, California. There's tension between the Mexican community and the white community and all that stuff. And You know, I'm sad to say, you know, my heart was not right many times in many situations and struggled with that. Came back, came to the Lord, and where did God send me? Down to Mexico to go minister to orphans. Go hanging out, loving people, and God just breaking my heart for people. You know? Then he sends me to the Philippines. You know, and... Just God just working, 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 working the gospel, getting his heart, his mind, the way he sees things. Not the way politics are, not the way culture is. Just what does his word say? What does his word say? What does God say? Not what affiliations or... And we have such a wonderful system now to where we are all divided up into every single category you could ever imagine. And Jesus wants to just take that and go, you know what? Come into the family of God. You're all welcome. All come in through the person, Jesus Christ. And we get to enjoy the differences God has made. You know, I've been in the, in the, in the jungles of the Philippines. I've had deeper fellowship with strangers than I have some of my own church members. They can't even speak my language. And their love just poured out. Their hospitality poured out to me their kindness their love the radiance of jesus christ in their lives in the middle of the jungle in the philippines it's powerful it's powerful the gospel goes everywhere so let me ask you today who is it that you're not willing to share with what people group are you not willing to relate with what situations you know i was i got a letter from uh someone who shall be named name nameless in the community but they sent a letter saying we really, you know, I'm offering this Greek class, you know, for you to learn Greek. And believe me, it's really cool to learn Greek. And that way you can study your Bible and know the original meaning. And it's really deep. It's awesome stuff. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's great. But we really need to learn Spanish. You know, I'm just going, you really need to learn Spanish, not Greek. We need, we need to have that outward Thing. Where am I going to take this and apply this? When's this? How can I impact people? How can I tear down barriers between me and that person across the street? How many Spanish people do we have in this town? And how many Spanish people do we have in our church? Okay, there he is. We're, we're, we've got you. Praise God, man. Woo! But I'm just saying. It's time. It's time that we start going, the gospel takes precedence over anything, any background I've had, any 
socioeconomic stuff, any political affiliation, the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forward. Just the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And go. Wherever you are, just be awkward. Fall into it. Let God use you. And as those things pop up in your heart, as Peter's going to struggle with right now, with this guy, he's going to go, you know, it's not even lawful for you to come into your house. And he lets them all know because you guys were unclean. You know, and he just, just wants you all to know. You know, it's like he's working through this stuff. He's going to struggle with this his whole life. Do you know in Galatians chapter 3, what happens is Paul is, Paul is there, Peter's there, and then there's Gentiles hanging out with Jewish believers, and then all of a sudden a delegation comes from Jerusalem, and then they were Jewish. And what happens with Peter? He starts not eating with the Gentiles and starts going to hang out with the Jews. And Paul stands up and just lights him up in front of the whole church. Apostle, laying out apostle in front of the whole church and says, what are you doing? You're misrepresenting the gospel, the Lord. Because Peter was concerned about, oh gosh, if I've got to appear more Jewish, the law, all these things, they do not save. Who do we associate with? So I'm just saying, the gospel goes forward, but the voice spoke to him three times. While Peter was still wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. And they called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go for them, for I have sent them. And Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, we have come from, from Cornelius, a centurion. He is a righteous man. There's so much there. We've got an occupier who wants to talk to you. The Romans, who you hate. This guy, he's in the army. He's the one who sends the troops to, do, to rough up your people. There's so much there. Culturally, he's a Gentile. Cornelius, we've come from him. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him, uh, to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Verse 23, what happens? Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. That is the true definition of hospitality in scriptures. It is, it is entertaining strangers. You have such an open heart that you are willing to take strangers into your house. And I know Marcus has talked about this so much, and he's an amazing example of, the, of, the, of just that gift of hospitality. But the gospel is hospitable. It's hospitable. I come from a, more of a closed culture, something I have to change, something we're all working on. But I don't care what I've come from and what my background is. The gospel is this, and so therefore, Jesus, if you're like that, I'm going to be like that Forget what I grew up with. Forget all these things. I'm conforming to you because you're my Lord. You're my Savior. I'm no longer my dad's kid. I'm now my father's kid. And I'm in a new house, new rules, new way of loving things. And while those things were great, this is eternal. You are my dad, and I'm going to follow you for 
the rest of my life changed me at year 15 walking with you, at year 20, at year 25, at year 50 walking with you. God, is there something you need to change and work on? Something that would, is hindering me from shining the true light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way I act, the way I walk, the way I look at people, who I interact with, however I do that. God, level me. Amen, church? Amen? There are Corneliuses all over the place. And there are Peters, too. And I feel like a Peter sometimes, you know? Lord, help us to be sensitive to your spirit so that your heart will beat through us and go get them. Go preach. Go share. Go love. Go talk to Go bake a cake for someone. Give them food. Help them with their tire. Whatever it is, however the Lord's talking to you. Number three. You know what I mean? Because you are the light of the world. You are the arms of Jesus. You are the feet of Jesus. You are the mouth of Jesus. You are the love of Jesus in human flesh. His spirit is in you. Go shine. Go. You have all the authority in all the world to go in love. Amen? And he will go and he will preach the gospel in this house in a very awkward cultural situation. And God will save Cornelius and his whole household. And the Holy Spirit will fall upon them and begin to move into the Gentiles. And then Paul will shift to Paul and Paul's going to start working with all the Gentiles. It's beautiful. What's God going to do through you this week? How is he going to, he's going to move through you? I'm excited to see what God is doing in our fellowship and in the hearts of people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are now your kids, that the way we operate and we think in this world is now going to be changed through the washing and the renewing of our minds through your word. Transform us, Lord, day by day, more and more into the way that Jesus looks the way that he lives, the way that he talks, the way that he moves, the way that he gave, the way that he suffered, the way that he looked at life, the way that he persevered, the way that he dealt with people rejecting him, the way that he was just tenacious in doing your will because of the love that compelled him, the love for you. Father, let your love be our guide, the love and the mercy, the forgiveness, the debt that we had was so insurmountable and you walked, you came down and you paid it all. We've been given this incredible freedom and now we are called to go give that to the lost and go minister to them the same way that that you minister to us. So fill us with your Holy Spirit. If there's any sin in our lives, another hindrance to the gospel, God, will you just convict this right now? that we would just call out and say, God, forgive me for this. Get it out of my life because I want your light. I want your light. I don't want darkness anymore. And if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you this morning, don't let that go by. You grab a brother or sister, you come talk to me, and you tell me this is what's going on, and the Lord's calling me out of darkness, and we will walk with you through it, and we'll encourage you, and we will pray for you, and we will hold you accountable in the Lord and the love of the Lord. We're all in that process. Lord God, please just have mercy upon your church. We thank you so much for the gospel and the freedom, Lord, that you've given us and help us to walk in your light today. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.